Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. What a joy it is to see all of your faces, to look out and see the faces of the people of God, real people with real faith in Christ Jesus, people whom God has saved. You know, what, a, what a miracle. Each Christian is a living, breathing miracle that God has reached into our lives. He's brought salvation. He has given us new life in Christ. He has redeemed us. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. What a blessing to be among Christians. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Yes, we have now come to the last chapter, the final chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And this means that we are on the very final stretch uh, in this series on Romans. Coming up here, uh, uh, just under two years, about two years, we are leaning in to the end of our time in Romans. And so it probably is now a good time to let everyone know what our next series will be, what book we'll go to next. Uh, and that will be the book of Exodus. That's what we will be in uh, for who knows how long uh, after we finish Romans. It seems to me that Genesis, which we finished a couple of years ago, is still a little fresh on everyone's mind. I might be a little naive there. It's really fresh on my mind, but I actually preached it. Uh, maybe it's fresh on your mind, maybe not. But I have spoken with some who have affirmed that. And so it seems that Genesis is still fresh. And so I figured this would be a good opportunity to pick up where we left off rather than go somewhere else and then at some point go back to where we left off to go ahead now while it's still somewhat fresh to go back where we left off and to move into the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Really to honestly pick right up where we left off there at the end of Genesis in chapter 50 with Joseph there uh, asking the, the uh children of Israel to the, the descendants of Jacob to carry his bones back to Canaan. And I love as I've been going through Exodus over and over again, thinking through it, I love uh, how when the Israelites are leaving and going out of Egypt and God has finally brought them out with a strong hand and Moses is leading them out, that Moses takes care to gather Joseph's bones. And so we see how the story just seamlessly moves, though there is a space of time there the story moves between Genesis and Exodus. So that's where we will be for a little while. Uh, shortly, the plan, Lord willing, is that between Romans and Exodus, uh, our associate pastor Trey will preach a few more sermons on Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so a little more Paul, and then we'll move to Moses. A little more Paul, and then back to Moses. But isn't it great that it's all from God? So whoever is preaching and whatever is being preached from the Holy Scriptures, they are in fact the Holy Scriptures. It is God's word from the very first verse of Genesis to the very end of Revelation. And so all of it is edifying for us when explained to God's people, no matter which biblical author, no matter which preacher. And so we recognize that and we praise God for what he teaches us each week from his word. The title for the sermon today is The Apostles' Greeting, part one. 
It is part one because for the next two weeks we will be looking at verses one to 16. So we're not gonna take all of verses 116 today. We're gonna start into that, but we'll finish that up, Lord willing, uh, next week. Paul has been concluding his letter to the Romans since chapter 15, verse 14. It's quite a long conclusion for a letter. It's a very long letter, though, we recognize. And Paul, beginning in verse 14 is, of chapter 15, is starting to conclude. He's moving towards uh, his final words as we'll come to the end of chapter 16. So far, in this concluding section, we've had three sermons on this material. We've covered Paul's ministry Paul's own reflections about his ministry, how he sees himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. We've seen his travel plans moving forward. What's Paul going to do now? He's written this letter. He's written all of these chapters, though he didn't write it in chapters. He's written all of these words. He's written this extended message to these believers in Rome. What is he going to do next? Where is he going next? We've looked at that, his travel plans. And then last week, we talked about his prayer requests. And we noted that Paul, too, had prayer requests. That even the apostle who was called by Christ to have these special graces from God to be the apostle, not just an apostle, but the apostle to the Gentiles, and who himself wrote most of the New Testament, this man was still a man, still a descendant of Adam, still carrying around his mortal body, and still in need of the prayer of his fellow believers. And so we saw last week how Paul asks for prayer, and he asks the believers in Rome to join with him in prayer, even more to strive with him in prayer, to, to join the fight that prayer is, the struggle of it, the wrestling in prayer. So that's where we ended last week. And today in verses 1 to 16, we come to Paul's greetings, the apostles' greetings. And as we come to this last chapter, and particularly these opening verses, we might be tempted to quickly fly over this section. We don't fly over the end of chapter 3, right? Nobody flies over that. We don't fly over the end of chapter 8, but we might be tempted to fly over this part, these 16 verses. Like a genealogy, isn't this merely a list of names? Just kind of a formality tacked on at the end of the letter. Well, listen to the church father, John Chrysostom, as he warns us against this approach. So uh, over 1,500 years ago, there's a preacher in Antioch first and then in Constantinople, who warned in his sermon on these verses against this flyover approach, this neglectful approach. He says, I think that many, even of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men, hasten over this part of the epistle as superfluous, as unneeded. And having no great weight in it. And I think that the same befalls them in regard to the genealogy that is in the gospel. For because it is a catalog of names, they think they cannot get any great good from it. And maybe you thought that back uh, when we were going through Genesis and we came up on all those 
genealogies, particularly of Ishmael and Esau. They're not even in the main story. I mean, we get, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We get, uh, we get the, the significance of Jacob's descendants. And even between, you know, Adam and Eve and Noah, that's pretty significant. And even between Sham, Ham, and Japheth going all the way up, you know, to Abraham, we get that. But all those other genealogies, he goes on to say, uh, after he says, for because it is a catalog of names. They think they cannot get any great good from it. And then he goes on to say this. It is possible even from bare names to find a great treasure. And so that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. We're going to look for treasure in this greeting, in this catalog of names. And of course, it is what it is. It is a catalog of names. It is a list of people. But there is instruction here for the people of God. There are things to notice here, things to observe here, and things to apply to ourselves here that will help us in the Christian life and give us a better understanding of the apostles and the ministry of the gospel and what it looked like to be the church, universal and local, at the time of the apostles. And That tells us a lot about what it means to be the church, what it looks like to be the church today, both universal and local. So if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read all of these 16 verses. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. This is... The word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, My beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufina and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You can go ahead and be seated. Historians have had an exciting time with the, this list of names because it gives you much insight into the Church of Rome. Just the, the names, of Greek names and Latin names and Jewish people named 
with Greek names and those who are sl- the slaves or, or freedmen or those who are a part of a house of a well-known person in Rome, two names here in particular attached possibly to uh, the house of the emperor. And we see Paul in Philippians writing about uh, the imperial palace and their believers there. So it's very interesting what comes out of this passage just from a historical standpoint, but there's much for us to see here as the people of God. These are our people. One thing that's always struck me about these names is undoubtedly some, if not many, of these people were murdered in the 60s under the persecution of the emperor Nero. We are reading the names of these precious people of God who some of whom were literally burned alive as human torches covered in tar. Some of them were fed to lions. Some of them were killed by gladiators for Nero's pleasure. To pacify the Romans, as he had blamed a big fire that he himself may have created, on the Christians. They were a ready scapegoat. And so many of the names that we read here, these are some of whom are the holy martyrs of God, these precious, otherwise unnamed people, these ordinary folks. I mean, that's who these people are. We're reading about they're ordinary folks, and yet they are are now and one day will be shining like the stars of heaven, as Jesus says, shining in God's kingdom. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing as we come to his word. Father, we thank you that we have these precious verses that we encounter, these precious names. We're humbled. Even today as we gather as just ordinary people. Ordinary people of God, and yet not a single person of God is ordinary in any sense of the word. We see here, God, the glory, as we think about it, the glory of your people. These are people whom we will worship you with for eternity. We thank you for the household of God, for this holy city for the heavenly Jerusalem for Zion your people we praise you God that we have been made part of this people though not a single bit do we deserve it and yet we take it as as a small thing to be part of your church, to be united to your son, to have as brothers and sisters thousands and millions of people throughout history who have borne your name through your son, Father. We thank you for all of this. We thank you that we are in Christ Jesus. And I pray, God, for any child who's here this morning listening, who any unbelieving person who's here this morning who's not a Christian, Lord, that they would be drawn in by the sheer glory 
of this great people that spans space and time, that they would desire, by the gift of your spirit, that they would desire to be a part of this great people. That they would desire, by your grace, working in their heart, to know you through your Son, our brother, our Lord, our Redeemer. We pray that you would be with us now as we come to your word. Instruct us, edify us, build us up, comfort us, challenge us. Do the work, Father, that you promised to do through your word, which is more precious than much fine gold and sweeter than honey. In Christ's name, amen. So I think we can break this passage up into four parts. We're going to start with the first half of it today, and next week we'll go on to do the rest. So I've got them here. I've tried to have them all start with a P just to help you out. <laughs> a little easy uh, with these names at the beginning, uh, but that will at least give you, maybe aid your memory as you try to recall what's here. But these are, as I see it, four parts of this passage, verses 1 to 16. So first, we're going to look at Phoebe of Kincrai, verses 1 to 2, and then Prisca and Aquila, this married couple, verses 3 to 5a, and that's just going to be for today. We'll, we'll stop there at the end of today, and then we'll come back next week and look at particular believers, verses 5 to 15, which we already have mentioned with Prisca and Aquila, but a long list of particular believers getting shorter mention than Prisca and Aquila, and then we'll finish up with public greetings, these sort of large, general, universal greetings that Paul uh, gives there at the end in verse 16. So that's what we're going to look at today, just those first two. So let's begin with Phoebe of Cancreae. Phoebe. Look at verses 1 to 2 with me. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This greeting section begins with a commendation, a commendation of a lady named Phoebe. Paul is writing Romans from the large and important city of Corinth in Greece. That's where he's writing this letter. So we know about the Corinthians. His other long letters were uh, associated with Corinth. They were addressed to Corinth. So these three longest letters of Paul are, are either to Corinth or written there in Corinth, which was a, a very famous, well-known city going back into the ancient world. About eight miles east of Corinth, there is another place, <clears throat> a place that you never heard of maybe before today or before you first read Acts 18 or Romans 16, a small place, a small city, a port city called it is the eastern seaport of the city of Corinth. And so if you were traveling to Corinth, you would, from to or from Corinth, you would go through Kincrai. We saw that with Paul in Acts 18. 
undoubtedly there would have been a close connection between the believers in these two places, between the believers in the larger city of Corinth and this smaller port city of Cenchreae. And perhaps the church in Cenchreae was planted by the believers in Corinth. I think we are to assume that, that as Paul is going around the eastern Mediterranean and he's, he's planting churches in places where Christ has not already been named, that, and then he, he leaves those places and goes and plants other churches, the expectation is that those believers are going to continue to share their faith and they're going to infiltrate those surrounding areas, those more provincial areas outside of the major cities. The spread of the gospel happening in that way. So probably it is the case that some believers from Corinth helped to plant the church there in Cenchreae. Either way, there is a church there, and one of the members of that church is this lady named Phoebe. Now let me just make this point about church membership. Uh, it's clear that Phoebe is of the church there, right? It is not sufficient nor biblical to simply be a dangling member of the universal church of Christ. It is not sufficient to simply understand that you are there in the ether as part of the people of God universal, and that is fine. That's enough. We understand from the New Testament alone that Paul writes to specific groups of believers that, that membership in the body of Christ universal, the capital B body, the capital B bride, meant belonging to these little bees, belonging to these little B bodies. So Phoebe is one of the people who are of the church of she is identified as being of that church. Paul is sending her to Cenchreae with his letter to the Romans. Isn't that amazing? That he would entrust that to anybody? He's, he's sending his letter to the Roman believers by way of another person. All the time, all the thought. All the theologizing and development and exhortation and encouragement and all of that that is pinned in this letter, he is sending by way of another person. And even more, in the ancient world, it is remarkable that he is entrusting this to a woman, giving her this very, very, very important task. This shows the key role that women had in the early church. The key role that women had throughout early Christianity. And it reminds us of Jesus giving the first resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene. There's Christ. He is risen. The most incredible event in all of the universe, in all of human history, the, 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 the event that transforms space and time, the event that marks new, the beginning of new creation. And it is not to uh, the notable Peter or, or to uh, a group of men that the Lord Jesus appears. It is to Mary Magdalene. How incredible that is. Christianity was, in its day, countercultural in its appreciation and elevation of Women, And that's something that is contrary to the world's perception. 
that it is uh, a kind of, that there's kind of a built-in sexism uh, to Christianity, that that goes back and that's where really most of it comes from. But when we actually look at history, when we look at the birth of Christianity, we see the great appreciation and elevation of women that took place both in the time of the Lord Jesus and throughout the ministry of his apostles. We think of the women who ministered to Jesus and the apostles, and we come to a list like this that begins with Phoebe and Prisca. Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. He's writing to the Christians there. And he doesn't begin with a long list of, of notable, the notable men. He doesn't begin with the elders. He, the first two people mentioned in his list are Phoebe and Prisca. And then, after mentioning those two, he goes on to mention many other women who have helped and labored with the Apostle Paul. So we just recognize in in our own day, as we look back on this biblical time, as we look back on biblical New Testament Christianity, the incredible role of women among the people of God. I remember when Jennifer, a few years ago, was reading this book on Reformation women, and just the incredible role, it reminded me of this, this sort of, these sorts of texts, the incredible role that women during the Reformation had in uh, the, the furtherance of the gospel and, and in the, the, the bathing of the gospel as it is being carried out. We, we think of people like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and others, but there are so many unnamed women of God who are working tirelessly as laborers in the field of the gospel. And we see the same thing here with the Apostle Paul. So Phoebe is headed to Rome with Paul's letter. And Paul attaches this little note of commendation. It functions like a reference letter, letting the people in Rome know that she has Paul's approval and endorsement. One of the first things I do when I pick up a new book. Like if I go to a conference, I'll be going to the Shepherds Conference in March in California. And when I go to a conference, it's a massive book stall. It's it's like a child being in you know a wonderful candy store. It's it's absolutely incredible. Maybe you can't relate, maybe you can. But there's this massive tent and so many books. Every publisher, I think every major publisher, uh, evangelical publisher, is there. And as we go through and look at all of those books. One of the first things I always do when I pick up a new book, if I haven't heard of the author, I don't really know anything about the person, is I look on the back. Who likes this book? Who's read this book whom I like, whom I appreciate? So if, you know, if I see a, a pastor or a scholar or someone whom I respect, I have read and I know about them and I know their work, I know their, their sentiments, I know their inclinations, I know their, their care, I know their theology, and I see that they've said, good book, then that means something to me. That means something to me. And and if I don't see anyone on the back of the book whom I know, then that also means something to me. It doesn't mean I don't buy the book. It just means I'm a little less moved to go ahead and get that book. Well, the similar thing is happening here with Phoebe. There's a, a reference letter for Phoebe. Paul is giving his endorsement. This is good people. Phoebe is someone whom you can trust. Phoebe is someone whom you can 
let into your home and keep up, you know, in, in a room. She's someone you can let, you know, come in and hang out with your kids or whatever else. She's someone you can trust. We see a similar thing happening with Apollos in Acts chapter 18, verse 27, when it says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So they're also writing a letter. The people Apollos is going to, they don't know this guy. They don't know Apollos, but, but with these, these little notes of reference from these brothers whom they do know, they say, oh, he's with so-and-so, or he was sent by so-and-so. Come on, brother, come on in. So it encourages them to welcome him. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's writing to the Roman Christians to welcome Phoebe and to provide any assistance that she may need. To welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever she may need from them, whatever that might be. We don't know all the reasons that Phoebe is going to Rome, but Paul tells the believers to embrace her with love and hospitality. So it may be that Phoebe is already headed to Rome. There's a ton of travel going on in the ancient world. I mean, we tend to think that people are just stuck where they are, uh, but there's a lot of movement. We see that in the New Testament. It's not so safe. It's dangerous to go out on a ship. We see Paul getting shipwrecked. You can read accounts in ancient history where people will try to stick close, and in the Mediterranean world, try to stick close to the shore. But what we find here is that Phoebe is headed there for some reason or another. Maybe she's just going for the sole purpose of delivering this letter. But maybe she is going to handle some business and her travel plans intersect with Paul's writing of the letter. And so she's the natural one from that area, from Corinth or Kinkrei, from that surrounding area among the believers. She's going to take this letter to the believers in Rome. Paul tells them to embrace her with love and hospitality. So who is Phoebe? Well, Paul describes her in several ways. Let's look at each of those. First, she is described as our sister. In other words, she's a believer. She has embraced the gospel Paul preaches. She has been justified by faith alone, she has died with Christ, been raised to newness of life. The love of God, as Paul says in Romans 5, <coughs> has been poured into her heart by the Holy Spirit given to her. Paul says she is our sister. She is part of God's family. So I want you to just take a moment, look around this room. Like really do that, if you would. Just look around the room for a moment. Look to your left. Look to your right. Um, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are family. This is family. And that, that makes holy times that we spend simply eating together. That makes holy times that we spend gathering to recreate together. Why? Because we are family in Christ Jesus. That's the reason we're together. Would all of us be hanging out with each other? Is everyone in your gospel community group like you? Would you be hanging out with them if you had just met them in college? 
or if they were just co-workers. No, we're different. We have different interests. We, we, we have different personalities. But we are one people because we are one family. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And so Paul describes her as our sister. You know, this also makes me think about us men in the church, you know. Paul, at one point, uh, comments that there, there needs to be regarding of young women as sisters. This is one of the ways that protects against lust within the church. Is, you know, young men and young women in church together, some married, some unmarried. So, well, how does that work? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the way that we relate to one another? Well, here's the thing, man. Here's the thing, brother. Your sister... That, that, that lady in the church whom you might be tempted to have lust in your heart over is your sister. She is your sister in Christ Jesus. And that's the way we ought to think about our fellow believers. Paul calls her here our sister. Let me just also say that this tells us that the church has an affirming role in the lives of Christians. Now notice what Paul is doing. He's affirming Phoebe. Without this affirmation, there is something lacking. And that's another thing too is if, if you neglect the local church and you live in this kind of just universal church mindset, then really what you're saying is I don't need anyone to affirm me. It is really just me and Christ. I don't need the church really down deep in my life, people who know me very well, who live alongside of me, who, who do church or minister alongside of me to affirm me. And that's not the case. The church has always been affirming the people of God. To be a Christian and to be dangling in midair, unaffirmed by the church of Christ, is to live in no man's land. Paul here is affirming her as someone who is on the inside, she's in Christ. She is our sister. Second, Paul describes her as a patron. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Paul describes her as a patron. In other words, she is a benefactor, probably a wealthy woman, maybe widowed, who has the means to support the work of the ministry. This is probably a lady with a lot of means. She has a lot of money, maybe a lot of influence, a lot of connections, and she is able to support the work of the ministry as a benefactor. She has provided support, financial and otherwise, to Paul himself and many others. And Paul says that here. She's been doing this for a while. She's helping Paul to do what he needs to do in the work of the gospel. And she's helping other believers, other church leaders, other missionaries to do the work that they need to do in the work of the gospel. And God has undoubtedly called some of you to that role. God has given you means. God has given you the things of this world Material things, and make no mistake about it, it is God who has given those things to you, lest you pridefully pat yourself on the back as more successful just in and of yourself. It is God who has given those things to you. Whatever it might be that we have that others don't have, it is a gift from God. And maybe God is calling you to utilize that more actively, more intentionally, more robustly and generously. 
we see here that that is the case with this lady, Phoebe, who has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Third, Phoebe is described as a servant of the church at Cenchreae. Now, we've already talked about Cenchreae, but what does it mean that she was a servant of the church there? This could also be translated deacon. Some translators, some translations translate this as deacon or deaconess. And you'll see in the ESV a little note next to the word servant. It'll take you down to the bottom of the page and give you or deaconess. So this could be translated servant or it could be translated deacon or deaconess. So was Phoebe an officer of the church? That's the question. Many have asked, many disagree on it. Was she an officer of the church? Was she a deacon or was she someone who simply served that church in line with her role as a patroness or a benefactor? In a pronounced, significant way, she served or was a servant of the church at Cenchreae. Well, as I said before, commentators debate this, but I personally think uh, that this should be translated servant rather than deacon. So I would agree with the ESV translators with the translation of servant. Listen to the way John Murray explains it. It is common to give Phoebe the title deaconess and regard her as having performed an office in the church corresponding to that which belonged to men who exercised the office of deacon as in Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. Though the word for servant is the same as is used for deacon, in the instances cited, yet the word is also used to denote the person performing any type of ministry. If Phoebe ministered to the saints, as is evident from verse 2, then she would be a servant of the church and there is neither need nor warrant to suppose that she occupied or exercised what amounted to an ecclesiastical office comparable to that of the diaconate. So to add to that a little bit, where we find the qualifications for deacons, and uh, this is the controversy, this is the debate, is whether uh, Phoebe should be regarded as a deacon of the church at Cenchreae. We have deacons, churches have deacons, churches have elders. Should she be seen here as one of the office holders of deacon as described in Philippians 1 and as described in 1 Timothy 3? Should she be understood to occupy that office? And I think one of the places that we look is to the qualifications for deacons mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.12. And when we read those qualifications, it is abundantly clear that men are in view. We are told that they must be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So when you get the qualifications for deacon, if there was a, a kind of uh, a deacon who was a deaconess and a deacon who was a, a deacon, uh, then you would expect something like husband of one wife and wife of one husband. You actually get that language, wife of one husband, when Paul talks about widows. So it would have been very easy for Paul to say husband of one wife in the case of a deacon, and wife of one husband in the case of a deaconess. Paul doesn't do that. Men are in view. The husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. 
Also, and less significantly, Acts chapter 6 gives us the proto-deacons. Now, you have to be careful here because in Acts chapter 6, we don't get the word deacon used. These are not deacons in the later developed strict sense of the word. But I think we would have to be living in another universe to not recognize that what we find going on in Acts 6 is a kind of proto-diaconate a sort of initial apostolic kind of diaconate formation that then plays out in individual churches where there are elders and deacons. So at the very least, proto-deacons. And in Acts 6, it is seven men of good repute who are to be chosen. Not just seven believers, not just seven people, but seven men who are to be chosen. But as I said before, there is disagreement on this among Bible-believing Reformed evangelicals on this question. There are many people whom I respect and love and read, and and, and you hear me even uh, quote and cite up here, uh, are, are on the other side of this. They think that there should be deaconesses based on the New Testament, and that Phoebe is an example of a deaconess. So there is debate over this. And we have to point out that we don't get the same kind of injunction against women deacons in the New Testament that we get for women elders. I would regard a church that has women elders as being unfaithful to Scripture in a way that I would not regard a church that has women deacons as being unfaithful to Scripture. And the reason for that is because we get a specific injunction from the apostle against women leading and teaching over the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather she is to remain quiet. So it is in the very fabric of an elder to exercise authority and to teach. So women are not to do this. Clearly we have a verse like this in the scriptures. It's not just one verse. There are other places that we can pull together to show this. Also There were clearly unique roles for women in the context of the local church and in the church universal at the time of the apostles. There were widows and virgins and, of course, this somewhat ambiguous category of women mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. So when you get 1 Timothy 3, 11, you get get these qualifications for deacons. Paul talks about deacons a little ways, and then he has this, this little bit where he says, and women... And he goes on and talks about it. And then he comes back to the deacons at the end. Well, the problem is that the word women and the word wives is the same Greek word. So when you're reading through uh, that passage, you come to uh, those sections, those verses after in 1 Timothy 3.11. We're meant to ask the question, is it wives or deacons? It, I mean, I'm sorry, is it the wives of deacons or is it a separate category called women? is there this category within the church called women. And they do this certain work that needs to be done within the church. It's a separate category from deacons. And because it's treated, it's sandwiched within these qualifications of deacons, what must be in view is are are women deaconesses. That's the argument of some. I would take that portion to be translated wives. 
that the wives of deacons are in view there. But some point out that uh, the, el- the wives of elders are never mentioned, so why would Paul identify the wives of deacons and not address the wives of elders? So I'm not gonna go any further into all this, but I just ho- hope you at least understand that that's the reason, there's some of the reasons why there are debates on this question. And because of these things, it is no surprise that deaconesses developed in the early church. Uh, As the church developed in those first few centuries, there were deaconesses, and and they served in various capacities, particularly serving the women of the church in baptism and caring for them, the poor and the sick and needy, particularly among the women. So we, we know all of that, we recognize all of that, but the issue here is whether or not the office of deacon in the New Testament was occupied by both men and women. That's the burden we have to bear as we come to it as a church. Was the office of deacon in the New Testament occupied by both men and women? And I would answer no to that question. I think deacons were men only, and I agree with Murray that there is neither need nor warrant to ascribe the office of deacon to Phoebe in this passage. Uh, There's simply no need, and I I, I like the word warrant, for doing that. She was simply a servant of the church at Cancrea. And it's interesting, in the context, Paul is talking about how she serves as a benefactor. She serves as a patroness. She is an outstanding individual in the church because she is particularly influential in helping gospel things to happen. And so in the context, even, we get the sense that this notion of servant is general rather than being a specific office. So you may agree, you may disagree with that. There are many uh, respected brothers and sisters in the Lord who would disagree, but that is my understanding of what's going on here in Romans 16, verse one. So now we come to our second point, and that is Prisca and Aquila. We've looked at Phoebe of Kincrei, but now we come to Prisca and Aquila. And this is where we'll finish up this morning. Look with me at verses three to five A, the very beginning of verse five. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Once again, as I said before, we see the importance of women in the early church. So uh, we can, we can, I can say all that I just said there and yet at the same time uphold the key place of women in the early church and throughout the history of the church. What would we do though we do not have women officers, women elders and women deacons, what would we do here at Four Corners without the godly women among us? What would we do here without the service of so many women in the history of our Christian lives as we look back over how God has used his people in our lives, both men and women? And all throughout the Christian world, there were both men and women serving the Lord Jesus Christ and his church in various ways. One of those women was Prisca, or she's also called Priscilla who along with her husband Aquila are called Paul's fellow workers. So both Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila are Paul's fellow workers. And this is missionary language. The the idea of being a fellow worker of the apostle is to be involved in the mission, 
to be involved. Remember, Paul is a, a missionary par excellence. He is at the core. Paul is at the core a missionary. Everything we read from Paul, everything he writes, is the, the, are the words inspired by God of a missionary heart. And Paul, as he is carrying out this mission, has many fellow workers, many co-workers in the gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila are some of those. This couple was involved in the gospel mission. But that was not their day job. Prisca and Aquila had a day job. We learned from Acts chapter 18 that they were tent makers like Paul. And tent maker could be uh, people who made sails for ships or other things. It wasn't just, you know, we think of, you know, maybe a tent you go and buy at Academy Sports or something, you know, whatever. Uh, they made all kinds of things that, that involved uh, this, the, using these, uh, these tent-like fabrics and, and skins or whatever else to make various things needed that were like tents, like tarps. And so we see that Prisca and Aquila were also involved in this profession. This is a thing that Paul did. You know, we don't really think about Paul being a tent maker. We don't imagine him sitting around doing that sort of thing, but he, he would do that sort of thing all so that he could offer the gospel free of charge throughout the Mediterranean world and therefore be that much more above reproach given how much he was being attacked and slandered by so many. Paul's introduction to this couple comes through Aquila, whom he meets in Corinth. We read that earlier. Paul is preaching in the synagogue and he meets Aquila, a fellow Jewish Christian and a fellow tent maker. So these two guys have a lot in common. Paul meets Aquila, he's a tent maker and he's a Jew and he's a Christian. So it's natural that they get to know each other a little bit further we read all about this relationship in Acts chapter 18 where we get the bulk of the references to this couple. They welcome Paul into their home while he is ministering in Corinth. And then all three of them leave to go to Ephesus. Now once in Ephesus, we see Prisca and Aquila helping to get the preacher Apollos on the right track. Wasn't that interesting when we read that earlier? That here you have this couple who shepherds along this notable preacher in the early church. Some people think Apollos could have written Hebrews. There's a lot of debate on who wrote Hebrews. But there's this notable preacher. Paul mentions him at the beginning of his first letter to the Corinthians. And we have this couple, Prisca and Aquila, who kind of wrapped their arm around Apollos uh, in Ephesus, and they kind of instruct him in the faith, kind of like you know a spiritual mother and a spiritual father. They sort of walk him along. Let me read that to you from Acts 18, verses 24 to 26. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's kind of living in the, in the, in the middle here. He's, he's come along, he's in Christ, but, he, but he's sort of living still in that, in that time of, of John the Baptist's baptism. We see in Acts these people baptized by John the Baptist who, are, who, are, who believe in Jesus but are just there and, and we see them subsequently baptized into Christ. It goes on to say, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they take him along and they say, okay, this is great. They give him two thumbs up. This is great, Apollos. But uh, there's, there's, there are a few little tweaks we got we to work on here. A couple, couple areas where, you know, we got some rough edges. We've got some things that just aren't quite right. We need, to, we need to put this together a little better, more accurately. The way of God, Apollos is preaching the way of God, but he needs to preach it more accurately. And so they graciously come alongside of him. They don't call him a heretic and throw him away. They graciously come alongside of him and instruct him in the way more accurately accurately. And even though Apollos was competent in the scriptures, notice Prisca and Aquila were even more so. So think about this. Listen to the way that Apollos is described. He's fervent in spirit. He's eloquent in speech. He's competent in the scriptures. And yet Priscilla and Aquila are even more those things, in, well, at least their competency in such a way that they are able to come alongside of him and help him out in his understanding. That's who these believers are. These were strong believers. And perhaps it is believers like this whom Paul has in mind the most when he writes in chapter 15, verse 14, you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Of course, Priscilla and Aquila had already instructed even the likes of Apollos. But there's a lingering question for us here. What's the connection between Prisca and Aquila and Rome? Okay, he meets them in Corinth, and then they go to Ephesus together. In Ephesus, they help Apollos. Okay, that's Greece. That's Asia Minor. But why? He's writing to Rome. What's the connection between Prisca and Aquila and the Christians in Rome? Why are they in Italy? Well, we are told in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, when Paul first met them, that Aquila, a native of Pontus, had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And it's interesting, we find a, another reference to this expulsion of the Jews from Rome by the Roman historian Suetonius. So, Prisca and Aquila were part of the Church of Rome. They had been part of the Church of Rome before they ever met Paul. Going back to, remember at Pentecost, there were, there were Romans there. Well, they took the, the, the gospel, they took Christianity back to Rome. And so who knows when Prisca and Aquila uh, came to embrace the gospel? Who knows when they came to be a part of the Christians in Rome? Maybe they were some of the earliest believers there in Rome. But they were part of that before they even met Paul. They had been expelled from Rome, pushed out in A.D. 49, then, after Claudius' death in A.D. 54, they would have gone back to Rome. So Prisca and Aquila had been back in Rome now for about three years where they were at the beginning. So there they are, back in Rome, and these people whom Paul met in Corinth and ministered with in Ephesus are now among the recipients of his letter to the Romans. Prisca and Aquila are Paul's fellow missionaries, gospel workers, and they even risked their necks for Paul, he says here. Maybe during the riots in Ephesus, you read about those. 
where Paul is, 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 is chased down. Paul is, is, is totally persecuted in these areas. He's stoned. He's treated like, a, like they, want, they just want to murder him. And perhaps during this period, Prisca and Aquila stepped in to somehow rescue Paul. Maybe it was some other time. Maybe multiple times. They are true friends in the gospel. And they have demonstrated that by putting their own life on the line for the apostle. And we're told here that they even have a church that meets in their house. We'll talk about this a little more next week. But there's not like a church in Rome, like a big basilica. You know, those came to be built later, particularly after the period of Constantine. Many basilicas went up, and we see these big, like this right here, it's not a basilica, but it's a, it's a meeting place. Christians had those very early on, but not at this point. At this point, believers were meeting in houses. They were meeting in people's houses, people who had more means, who had a larger space. They had a little church within their home. And Prisca and Aquila host one of those churches. Paul is pointing out to his readers, notice this, this is important as we finish up this morning. Paul is pointing out to his readers that some of the key people in Rome already know and embrace his gospel. Remember, he is looking for support. He is explaining what he is preaching. He is silencing any false accusations or slanderous words that may be circulating among the Romans. Not only has he clearly laid out his gospel in the letter as he has articulated his theology, but he also points to like-minded brothers and sisters among the Romans themselves. Notice that. Paul is very strategic. Paul is very wise. He's very prudent. And he's very intentional in doing this. That's not to say that the greeting is empty and he's just doing this to make a point. But we can't ignore the fact that Paul is saying something by greeting the likes of Prisca and Aquila. He's saying, you've now read my gospel, now know this, Roman believers, whatever you might be hearing from Judea and in Rome, know this, that I have people who've ministered alongside of me who are a part of your church there, who are like-minded, who know my gospel and have helped to spread the gospel that I've preached and who even host a church in their home. This just reminds us that Paul is focused on the mission. Paul's main objective is to get support for Spain. <laughs> we just have to keep coming back to that as we read this wonderful letter of Romans. It's just, it is just wonderful in its own right. If Paul had just sat down one day and said, I shall write a treatise today on all of my great theology. I shall, I shall write a treatise today on all that the Lord has revealed to me and I will just explain it. Herein, I will tell you the gospel. And we would have, getting, we would have gotten all of, of Romans 1 through Romans 15. That would have certainly been fine. That would have been wonderful. The church needs what's in Romans. But it is instructive for us to never forget that everything Paul writes, every word he writes, he writes as a missionary. Which means every church ought to be gathering, ought to be studying, ought to be discussing and ministering as a group of missionaries. That's what a church is. We're a body of people on mission. That was Paul's focus. And even in his greetings, we see it rearing its head. As we finish this morning, let's draw out this one implication. The Christian life 
is filled with others. The Christian life, I'll say that again, is filled with others. If there's, if there's nothing else that we are to glean from this long list of names, and next week we'll get into the kind of machine gun list of names, all the, the names just piling up there. If there's nothing else that we are to get out of this greeting list, we realize that the Christian life is filled with other people, helpers, benefactors, fellow workers, those who put themselves on the line for gospel work, our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your Christian life filled with others or filled with a whole lot of self? It should be filled with others. My Christian life should be more filled with others and so should yours. This is what it looks like to inhabit the space of in Christness, to be in Christ Jesus is to be among Christ's flock. To claim Christ and have little regard for his people, as 1 John tells us so clearly and so frequently, is to not really be in Christ. To say that we are in Christ, but to have no deep love for the brethren, the people of God. To have a, a deep regard for fellowship with the people of God. A deep regard for relationships and koinonia, partnering together in the gospel with the people of God. Is to fool yourself. It's to fool yourself. There are no dangling Christians. There are no isolated Christians. We are in Christ and we are among one another. This, this, this list of names, this greeting, tells us that the Christian life is about unity and love. It is about mutual belonging within this family of God, within the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses that we've been able to look at this morning. We thank you for their details and for the overall picture that we get. Father, we thank you for those, those fellow workers of Paul. We're, we're Gentile believers this morning gathered, grafted in, and we're, we're descendants of the Gentile peoples, if not physically, we are descendants of them spiritually, of, of those who were being evangelized by the apostle. We were strangers and aliens and we have been brought in. And we were brought in going all the way back to these fellow workers. We were brought in by these fellow workers of the apostle, these, these people who ministered. Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for Prisca and Aquila. We thank you for Phoebe. And we thank you for all these brothers and sisters whom one day undoubtedly we will meet. And we will see them in your kingdom, Christ Jesus. We will see them. We will know them. What a blessing, Lord. But help us now to see and know our brothers and sisters present with us. Lord, help us not to neglect the meeting together. Help us not neglect, unless we must, one service. One service, unless we must, where the people of God are gathered. Uh, Lord, let us not neglect to, to be part of gospel community groups and Bible studies and other kinds of gatherings, Lord, where we can be with your people. Let us not simply be in Christ. Let us be among Christ's flock. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. Give us love 
for our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.